Good morning. Now, I know throughout a, a room like this, we'll have people who have had great weeks. We'll have people who have had not so great weeks. Those who have been through struggles and trials and hardships. We'll have those who have been out sledging and snowball fighting. And we'll have those who have had major travel disruptions, cancellations to meetings, schools being closed early. And then we've got those who are just plain old boring and who hate the snow. <laughs> For me, being a father of three with a fourth on the way, this has been a great week. I love the snow. I love the beauty it brings to the world around us. I love what it shows of a wonderful creator. And so on Friday, as the snow continued, we didn't think it was. Um, I was sat down in the office just down the corridor with Tim and uh, looking out the window watching it. Oh, it's actually settling. And so I got a little bit excited. I've been wanting to take my kids sledging uh, all week, but it's not really stuck around long enough. So, so Friday evening comes, I leave work, take the kids and the family to, to mum and dad's to pick up some sledges um, that they've probably still got from, from when I was a wee lad. I'm not Scottish, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so we picked up the sledges, we went home, it was about dinner time, so kids were getting hungry, so we went home, got the kids into their snowsuits, um, and just went out there around the corner from our house, we've got, we live in Broadfield, we've got the underpasses under the, the roundabouts, so just went sledging out there, um, had, had Eloise and Elijah either side of me, and we're sitting in the sledges, going, going down the hill, first one. First time sledging down a hill together. Special moment. Yeah. They loved it. Absolutely loved it. Well, they kind of loved it. <laughs> they, um, they, probably, yeah, they liked it. <laughs> Actually, no, they didn't like it. Eli was, Eli was crying. Eloise was a bit tired and hungry, so she was whingy. I liked it. I loved it. But trying to persuade them to stick around so I could do it again and go down there. Go down the hill, come on, I can't be a guy in my mid-twenties on my own going down, down hills out the side of my house. So I had to concede and take the kids in, give them some dinner. And then after dinner, I thought, oh, Phoebe, she's not been out in a sledge yet. <laughs> so I thought, hey, let's, let's hit, the, hit the slopes, Phoebes. She was about as impressed as the other two. Anyway, wherever you stand or fall on the snow... We're here today heading into spring with warmer weather and lots of rain forecast. Isn't it great? Anyway, this morning I'm really excited to have the opportunity to launch our new preaching series that we'll be running up to Easter. Uh, we'll be working through the final chapters of John's Gospel, um, looking at the arrest, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've called the series The Way, looking at Jesus the Way the truth, the life, and the journey he took uh, for us to the cross and beyond the grave. A little spoiler alert, we've been singing about some of the truths. I'm starting with Jesus arrested today, um, and we've got a, a whole um, other preachers lined up on the crucifixion, uh, the burial and the resurrection. So just a bit of a spoiler that as we work through today, you've got those things in mind, those things that allow us to sing Hallelujah, Christ is risen. So let's keep those in mind. So we're working through the Gospel of John. It's a Gospel written 
about 90 AD, so around 60 years after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. It was good news that John had preached. Uh, Ever since that moment, he encountered Jesus. The gospel is an eyewitness account that we read. We shouldn't be put off by the time between uh, the the events that took place and the recording of it, because these are accounts and proclamations and teaching that John's been living with and speaking and writing and sending in letters ever since that time. John would have had copies like us of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke that were written much earlier, um, which all share a common perspective on Jesus' life and ministry. And therefore we notice as we read through the Gospel of John that he doesn't speak of the parables Jesus taught. He doesn't include him driving out demons, healing lepers, doesn't include the transfiguration or even his prayers of agony in Gethsemane. He duplicates as little as possible to show us the Jesus that he knew. We get a much more personal account of who Jesus is as we read. So I don't know how many of you were affected by the the beast from the east this week. It had no negative impact on me. I got to go sledging in the end. It allowed me to explore uh, completely different parts of Crawley just around the corner from our house, Broadfield Park, um, that I've never walked through before. But I thought, oh, it's snowing. I'll, I'll go that way, see what's in there a frozen lake, and then I also took a walk through Tilgate Park in all its glory, covered in the snow, and another frozen lake that was able to withhold the the log I threw at it, but not the foot I put through it. (laughs) So what John brings us is is a different perspective, some different and untold stories of Jesus' life and ministry. What we see is Jesus in a more personal and relational way to what we encounter in the other three Gospels. And the reason John wrote his Gospel is found in John 20, verse 31, where it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of that to say... The the Gospel of John is included in the Bible, which is the Word of God. It's Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's life-giving. It's the Word of God. It has authority to speak to us and guide us, even today, to bring hope and joy into every situation and every moment of our lives. The Word is alive. So if you want to turn with me to John 18, I'm just going to spend a moment praying. Please join me. Lord God, we do pray that your word would do just that? Would it bring hope and life and joy? Would it bring understanding to our lives this morning? We pray that we would encounter afresh the person of Jesus, our Messiah, our Saviour. Would you come and reveal yourself to each person in this room this morning, we pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love who you are. We love what you've done for us and what it meant for you to take this journey through life and to the cross Thank you that you didn't remain in the grave, Lord, but that you were raised to life. You are the risen saviour, ascended on high, where you are now seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Come and be with us this morning, Jesus, we ask, in your holy name. Amen. So just before we read in, in John 18, I just wanted to pick up where we are in the story So we've got Jesus, the Word in the beginning of time, who has become flesh through the Virgin Mary. In John 18, we encounter Jesus three years into his ministry. 
the one who turned water into wine, the one who's teaching amazes those who hear, the one who heals the blind, the deaf, the mute, the crippled, the demonized, the nearly dead, the one who has power to raise the dead as he did with his dear friend Lazarus, the one who feeds 5,000 men from a boy's lunchbox and women and children on top of that, the one who walks on water, the one who's able to calm the storm. He is, as we've heard, the good shepherd. He's the bread of life. He's the, he's the vine to which we're all connected. And in the few chapters before this, we have Jesus predict his own death, his betrayal, and Peter's denial. He tells them in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him. He tells them about the promised coming of the Holy Spirit, and he then prays in, in this previous chapter, chapter 17, he prays to be glorified. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for all believers. So let's read from, from verse 1. It's quite a long chapter, but stick with it. There's a ton of stuff in here. It says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side. Uh, sorry, on the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of, of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. You still with me? Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire. They had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. 
Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it again, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. We made it. So this chapter, believe it or not, is the beginning of a victorious end. It may not feel like it just yet. It's the part of the movie where all hope seems lost. The protagonist you've just grown to love through the movie so far, hearing of his healings and his power to raise the dead, his love for people, his provision to feed and uh, rescue people. It begins to hit the inevitable trouble that we've been expecting. This is the beginning of a brutal, stomach-curling, gritty, intense part where it seems absolutely impossible for anything good to be resolved. John sets the scene, and we find ourselves in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of Jesus' regular spots. Judas knew it well. And we see right at the beginning here that what happened in the garden at the beginning of time, the Garden of Eden, was now at the beginning of being made right again. John also reminds us that Jesus' burial and his resurrection both took place in a garden where sin that separated man from God in the Garden of Eden is now working its resolution for man to be reunited with God through Christ. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second or the last Adam in the Garden of Eden where Adam sinned and now we're in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus conquers sin 
where Adam hid from the Father, Jesus presents himself before the Father. Romans 5 uh, tells us, For if by the trespass of the one man, the sin of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In this garden, a place known well to the disciples, we see that Judas knew the place where Jesus would be. Judas, the one who had spent so much time as one of his disciples with Jesus, in this very place where he comes to betray him. It's not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus has predicted this just a few chapters earlier. It says in John 13, one of you is going to betray me. And later in that chapter, as, John, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Here is Judas leading the soldiers and officials. Many have said that there would, be, there would have been hundreds in the, the mob that came out to, to find Jesus, uh, carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Now for me, you don't need torches and lanterns to find out where the light of the world is. You don't need weapons to arrest a guy that's known as the Prince of Peace. And yet Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He was not surprised or confused by anything that took place. But he had been both distressed and deeply troubled by what was about to unfold, all the while knowing the will of the Father. (coughs) Jesus has the authority and the sovereignty over everything, through everything. He's not a victim of circumstance here. He's orchestrating through it all. He's not passive in this. He steps forward and asks them, who is it you want? They came looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now you'll notice Jesus' response to them. Many of our Bibles, as with the one I read from, will show you his response. I am he. To which they drew back and fell to the ground. Now if a van full of police men and women uh, came in here this morning, banging on the door, and I, I stopped and I said, Hi, how can I help? And they say... Oh, we're here for Joe Stevens. And I said, I am he. The expectation would not be that they would fall back, (laughs) fall to the ground. I don't want us to miss what Jesus actually says here. The way Jesus responds is by saying, I am. You will have heard that somewhere else before, if you're following. This is the same answer that God gave Moses from the burning bush. When God commissioned Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and they ask, who sent you? What name shall I give? God says to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus uses this same name to identify himself. They came searching for Jesus of Nazareth, the man, the humblest of Jesus' names, which shows us he was human. (laughs) And he contrasts it by identifying himself with the name that has caused so many to fall down in worship throughout the Bible, by which many fall down in worship today and have done for the last 2,000 years, and the name that's above every other name that will cause every knee to bow in worship and every tongue to confess his lordship. As he responds to them, we see him reveal his true nature that causes those who have come to arrest him with weapons to draw back and fall to the ground. What a wonder that would have been. Jesus is in full control. He is sovereign over it all. He has full authority 
and he knows what is required of him, so he asks them again, and then he offers himself to them, but with the request of letting his disciples go. In verse, uh, in, verse, in verse 9, we've got, this happens so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now maybe again in your Bible, uh, you've got a little letter next to, to that passage or if you're on the Bible app, you've got a little dot, dot, dot. Um, this shows that there's a reference to uh, John chapter 6, verse 39 that we can uh, just flick back to. Jesus is fulfilling uh, what he's, he's previously said. He's fulfilling so much of the prophecy of the Old Testament. So we see in uh, John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus, the bread of life, says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. I'll read verse 40 because it's great as well. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. What a wonderful truth Jesus is so unconcerned with himself in this and so much more with the promise and the will of the Father to protect and rescue. Here we truly see the good shepherd that John uh, talks about in John 10, truly understanding and fulfilling his mission. Let's read John 10, uh, verses 14 to 18. Mark helpfully brought from uh, Psalm 23 this morning about the shepherd the one who leads us by still waters, the one who restores our soul. So we see, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. We see again, Jesus is in full control in this. It may not look like it. It may not sound like the sort of way you'd want to plan your own life or journey, but he, he knows the necessity of it for the sake of us. We then find Simon Peter, the one who will betray him later, gallantly step up and cut off one of the servant's ears. We know that the other Gospels, uh, from the other Gospels, that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. Otherwise, it would be very likely that Simon Peter would have joined Jesus in his crucifixion. Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What Jesus is reminding Peter again is that this is the will of the Father. This has not got out of hand or gone off course. God has this whole thing planned and within his control. So Peter, don't screw it up, as if he could. He does what we so often do in these situations. He takes things into his own hands. He tries to do things his own way. How often do we try and fix the problem? It's a reminder to us that God's got it covered He's sustaining the world, working all things for the ultimate good, for our good. If there's ever a moment to go home with your tail between your legs, it's when you've chopped the guy's ear off. 
And Jesus says, no, put your sword away. Come on. It gets worse for Peter. Jesus gets arrested and goes off to trial. And we see of Jesus' 12 disciples, we've got one who's betrayed him, nine have deserted and fled. The remaining two followed at a distance. Peter, who we read, denies Jesus three times. And John, the other disciple in this, uh, gets into the, to see the trial because he's known to uh, the high priest. But he doesn't intervene in any ways. He's there as a spectator. He's there to see his saviour. And so the 12 who devoted their lives to being with Jesus, who would have been with him day after day, knowing his power and authority, the joy of adventure with him, the surprises of the supernatural. Yeah, those 12 at this point of Jesus' arrest, they disperse, disown, deny him. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that in a, in a certain way. <laughs> when challenge comes, when temptation, conflict or tension arises, when there's threat, it's so often easier to run away and hide. Well, what we need to do is run to the one who promises protection, who promises hope, promises love, promises joy and shelter and victory. We must choose to follow Jesus, who despite how bleak our circumstances and situations seem, will lead us through to safety and to victory. And he'll restore us. We read of uh, the restoration of Peter in John 21. I won't go there now. But it's the, the restoration work that we've been talking about this morning, we've been hearing about. God's speaking to us this morning. There's a work of restoration available to each of us. And then intertwined with this, these denials of Peter, we find Jesus being questioned. Questioned by the high priest, by Annas, and by Caiaphas, the real high priest. And as we've identified the, the whole back and forth dialogue, it comes down to one thing really, Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? They ask, who are you? He is Jesus of, of Nazareth, but he's also the great I am. But for a mere human to claim such things to the Jewish people is, is absolute blasphemy. John draws much more attention actually onto the conversation with Pilate than he does with the Jewish leaders. Again, recognising that from Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospel, which he knew we would also have access to as he did, which unpack those conversations in more detail. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate, who seemingly wants nothing to do with it. He tells them to judge by their own law, which of course they can't do. One, because they have no right under Roman rule. And two, because the sovereign plan of God is at work and the fulfilment of prophecies about Jesus being lifted up means that the, the way he was to die was already foretold. It couldn't be that the, the Jewish leaders who could stone, stone him, that wouldn't have fulfilled the, the prophecies. And so we find that Jesus is in this dialogue with Pilate, and, and Pilate's asking, who are you? <laughs> he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, is that your own idea or did you talk to others about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replies? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? 
And Jesus talks about his kingdom being not of this world. Jesus is, is not professing here to be a political or a military king. He's not comparative to Pilate in any sense. He claims himself is, is part of a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, kingdom within this context doesn't refer to a territory or a location. Uh, it, it talk, it's actually an active um, concept, talking about the ruling and reigning of um, a kingdom. And we're, we read here, Jesus declares, I am ruling and reigning, but my kingdom is from another place. We read in Revelation 11 that there is a day coming where the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord, but it's not that time yet. And then we find Pilate finds no basis for, for any charge on him. I find nothing wrong with him. But the plan must move on. And at the time of Passover, there's a custom for Pilate to release a prisoner. And so Pilate brings this to the Jewish people, to the crowds that have gathered, to the Jewish leaders. And in comes this character, Barabbas. Barabbas, a guy who's rightly on death row for robbery, for committing murder in an uprising. A guy who would have known himself he deserved to be there. He'd done wrong. He would have been expecting the execution. And then we've got Jesus. Who would you choose in this situation, knowing what you know? And in a crowd of people where you're being told by those who you respect and are in authority, who would you choose? Would you go with the crowd? Would you stand up? Now, I did a quick bit of research on Barabbas, as I find him quite a strange character. He's just tucked in there at the, the end of this chapter, and he's in all four of the gospel accounts of... Um, of the, the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And so I, I, I looked, and obviously he's necessary in the process, but to, to be someone who's mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts, John clearly makes a, a point here, but Matthew's gospel tells us his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Now, Jesus or Yeshua, as it would have been, is a pretty common Jewish name, so don't be confused by that. Um, but the meaning of Barabbas is, is really simple, actually. It means son of a father. I mean, talk about stating the obvious. <laughs> I am a son of the father, a father. Surely the name would apply to any man. It's like us calling our next child son of Joe or Bar Joseph or Joe Jr. Oh, wait, no, people do that. Uh, so it's not quite like that. But the decision lays before the people... Do they choose to free Jesus Barabbas, the son of a father? Or do they choose Jesus Christ, the son of the father? I really sense there's something of the gospel of grace packed into this, uh, this tiny bit at the end of chapter 18. You've got a sinner in chains, locked away, awaiting the inevitable death. You then find Jesus, the one who's healed, restored, forgiven, loved, completely without sin. And in, in a moment, this sinner's life can change forever. Jesus steps forward fully aware of what it will cost him, fully in control, 
of the torment and agony he is about to step into. But he knows that for the sake of Barabbas, for the sake of mankind, these steps will make a way to freedom for all who completely undeserve it. Now we hear nothing else of Barabbas after that moment of substitution, but the question it leaves unanswered is, is what did he do next? Now we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know if he, he went and found Jesus, saw Jesus. We don't know what interactions they had. But what would you do if you knew that a, a guy who had been renowned for doing good, sure he'd upset some Jewish leaders, but what you see in the Gospels is, is a guy full of love, full of desire for the people, for he brought good about, he brought change about. And so the question falls to us, what, what would we do? Or what are we going to do? The one who knowingly accepted the chains and the beatings, the pain and slander, also that he could achieve what no other person in history ever could. When Jesus died, he died once for all, a gift that each one of us can accept today. We're going to stand and respond now, if I can invite the band up. Now maybe this is the first time you're hearing of this Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him before, maybe you've heard things about him, but today you've encountered and we've read through the truth, the wonder, the agony and the absolute victory of Jesus Christ. This offer is open to you. All he asks is that you accept him as your saviour and Lord for the free gift he wants to give you, freedom from sin, freedom from death, the gift of eternal life. And to those of us in the room who have already made that decision to follow Jesus and accept him, his free gift of salvation, it's time to worship. It's time to sing afresh with deep thankfulness for the agony of the cross, the agony of this journey, the silence of the grave and the roar of victory of the resurrection of our loving Jesus. Can we stand together? We're going to sing in just a moment, but I do just want to offer a time of response. We've read quite a chunky chapter. There's so much depth in there, so much I haven't shared, and I'm aware I've gone over time a bit. But I just want to offer an opportunity to anyone who's hearing about this Jesus for the first time, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who was bound and chained, the one who was actually fully in control of that. That's something you don't see. But for the will of the Father, for the Father's heart, for us, for each one of us in this room today, we have an opportunity to respond with thankfulness, but we have an opportunity to accept Jesus as our Saviour. He didn't do this just for the Jews of the time or the Gentiles of the time. He, he did it once for all, we're told. This journey he took was once for all. The ultimate fulfilment of all prophecy. Jesus fully in control, fully in authority. What we touched on earlier with, um, with Peter's denial, where we felt similar in that, where we've denied Jesus the opportunity to, to lead in our lives or speak into 
the specific areas that maybe we're struggling in, maybe we're fearful in. It's time to open up and accept him again. Give him that control. We sung earlier, I surrender all to my blessed saviour. And there's an opportunity for restoration. The restoration that took place in the garden uh, that we've seen from the beginning of time where it all went wrong. (laughs) Now being at the beginning of being put right and we'll follow through over the next few weeks and read more of that. There's a moment of restoration, an offer of restoration. So we come before you, Jesus. We thank you for your humanity, Lord. Thank you that you became flesh for us. Thank you that you walked this very earth. Lord, thank you for this treacherous journey to the destruction of your flesh. Lord, the death of your body, Lord, thank you that you would go through all of that suffering, all the flogging, all the beatings, Lord, for us. Lord, we rejoice in in suffering now because we know that it points to the suffering you went through. Lord, we understand the cost of that, Lord, and we just ask, would you come in power right now? Show yourself to us, Lord. We come before you in worship and adoration with hugely thankful hearts. Lord, come and receive our worship as we sing now. (coughs) Fill us again with your spirit. Allow the truth of this word to to rest in our spirit, to speak to our minds, Lord. Through this week, I pray that we'd be able to study this and understand more of the journey you went through, Lord, more of what you're trying to teach us through this word. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Lord, don't leave us. Lord, you've sent your spirit to be with us. Just as we sing now, would you reveal yourself again? Lord, we come with thankful hearts, grateful hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.